0: the following message is from king's cross church in manchester new hampshire for more information please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com we're going to turn to god's word so um if you don't have a bible we've got bibles in the back and we're going to have all the verses on the screen so no worries We are, um, as a church, what we do in the summer is we kind of take a break. We've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going through um, the Psalms for the summer. What we do, actually, is we just kind of, like, we'll preach through a set of Psalms. So Jay and David preached Psalms 50 and 51 for us a few weeks ago, and we're just going to do 52 through 55, and then we'll pause at the end of August, and then next summer we'll do Psalm 56 to, you know, whatever, 62 or something like that. And we just kind of work through the Psalms in the summer, Um, It's a good way to kind of change up our diet from what we're getting from God's Word. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, the Psalms are like right here in the middle. So you kind of open it right in the middle. I just got to Isaiah, which is a big old prophet book. You go right to the left and you're in the Psalms. Um, And the big number, Psalm 52, is the Psalm that we are at. Um, But again, if you're not familiar with uh, where those are at, all the verses will be on the screen. Um, I've actually uh, not... Been preaching the month of July. It's been pretty. It's been pretty uh, freeing to experience um, God's word from Jay and David, who are um, elder candidates as a church. They did a fantastic job of leading us through Psalms fifteen fifty one, and then we had a couple other uh, pastors from other churches in our network that were here for us. And I'm excited to be back um, leading us through God's word together. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Psalm fifty two. And then we're going to pray, ask for God's help, and then we're going to get into this together. So, Psalm 52, to the choir master, a miscal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day, your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all the wars that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. His righteous, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying... See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in his abundance, in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this psalm, I pray that you would lead us into understanding and enjoying your goodness to us when it seems like everything and everyone around us wants to take our life away from us. God, would you help us to find your grace in these psalms and relate to these words more deeply and even pray them ourselves because your steadfast love endures forever. So it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. What is, when I think, when I bring up the word opposition, what kind of comes to mind? Do you think of like politics where you've got like opposition parties like going against each other? Do you think of sports? When you uh, think of the word opposition, you got the, right, right now, like the Yankees and the Red Sox are going at it, right? And we had a great run. <laughs> we had a great run last week, not so great run this week. But when I bring up the word opposition, what comes to mind? Um... Sometimes we, we don't really think about that word as something that we actually experience, that we experience opposition. But opposition is basically the hardness of reality in a broken world, and it's often personal. It often feels like something's coming at us, like there's dragging us and, and causing a weight on our lives. That's opposition, kind of in this broad sense. And what we're going to be looking at in the next four weeks, actually, the, the four Psalms that we're looking at, they all deal with opposition, right? And when we think about opposition, like we think of like people with knives and swords or guns or whatever, or threats coming after us to break down the door. But opposition really is just kind of like the drags of life that just kind of like, man, life is hard. And so, actually what we're looking at. We're going to call this kind of like um, Jesus opposition mixtape because we're, the Psalms in this, uh, we're calling the Psalms series, the songs of Jesus. And so these are all Jesus songs. They belong to him. He's the one that sang them and prayed them first. And so these, five, these four Psalms that we're looking at, we're going to just call them the, um, can we go to the next slide here, the uh, Jesus opposition mixtape here, because I'm super clever. And um, Jesus opposition mixtape, so we're going to be looking at Psalm 52 this morning, opposed with lies, but Psalm 53 next week, opposed with unbelief, so not believing true things about God, opposed with threats, has anybody ever gotten a threat, threatening message, threatening tone, threatening notes? Psalm 54, and then opposed with betrayal. Anybody had friends stab him in the back? Yeah, Psalm 55. So we're talking about things I think are maybe not like what register when we think about like opposition, because when we think about maybe opposition, we think about like a big category of things. But Jesus gets down into the nitty-gritty of life, and he brings us into these little small areas that might not register on the big scale but feel very big to us. And so what we're really looking at here Psalm 52 is opposed Um, what it means to be opposed with lies, so to speak. Um, And as we're working through these things, by the way, this is not a way of like getting us off the hook of having to deal with what it means to be opposed. It's actually how Jesus gives us words to process just the hard stuff of life in a way that's God-centered because we tend to do it in a way that's self-centered. And when we get lied about, being lied about is kind of what we're talking about in Psalm 52. Being lied about is um, often a tricky experience. Have you ever had that happen where you're like, you, somebody, you're, you're talking to somebody and you hear, wait, so-and-so said what about me? They said what? They, I know John. I know her. And they said, they said what about me? That's what's going on in the background of Psalm 52. That's why we're looking at what it means to kind of process these emotions of being lied about or being, being talked about behind our back. Because the Bible is incredibly relevant to our experience of life. I think we've all had that experience. I mean, if, if you've ever been through junior high, right, even middle school or high school, you know what it's like to have somebody lie about you. And then if you're an adult, which we all are, you know what it's like to have somebody lie about you as an adult. And so when we are lied about, what do we do with it? Where do we go with that opposition? Because it can feel very, like we've lost, um, lost a sense of control. We feel a little bit like we're in the deep end Do we justify ourselves? What do we do? So here's what we're going to be looking at in Psalm 52. We're going to to say the main point of this, and we're going to kind of talk about how we're going to unpack this, and then we're going to jump into the story behind Psalm 52. So here's the main point of Psalm 52. When we're lied about, we must use our words to wait on God. It's a real simple dynamic going on in this psalm. When we're lied about, we use our words to wait on God. And we're going to see that As we work through this, we're going to see the first four verses, identify what's going on in a lie. Remember the sober ending of lies and wait with grace amidst the lies. So whenever you get somebody talking beef about you or you've got sense of like, I just can't seem to like justify myself or defend myself. Something's been said or done that I can't change and it's not true about me. If that's, you're kind of wondering like, what do I do with that? That's why God's given us Psalm 52 and we're going to start looking at that. So what do we do when words or lies are coming against us, being said about us, what do we do when people lie about us? So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to look at the first four verses, and we're going to identify what's going on in a lie. So before we get to the verses, though, we got these little headings in your songs. If you got, to, if you open your, if you have a Bible open in front of you, you got this little heading, like all these, like at least in mine, it's like these like capital letters that like, aren't the verses, but they're kind of like the heading, and we kind of like breeze over those generally. Like if we're reading a psalm, we're kind of like, I want to get to the good stuff, and we forget like this is like the Star Wars, you got the opening scrawl, you know what I'm talking about? This is like the opening scrawl to the psalm, and it says this, words that are going to make any sense to us, but they're going to lead us in the direction we need to go. To the choir master. Okay. So the worship leader, a miscal of David. No idea what that means. When Doag the Edomite, okay, we got a name and address, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. A super dramatic entering. (laughs) You're like, okay, what does this mean? All right. Here's the background of what's going on in this Psalm. So we're going to do a little bit of some history lesson here. Don't worry, it'll be uh, very, uh, I think, helpful for us in getting into the psalm. Back in 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, it was like a quarter away through your Bible. What was going on is Saul was set as the king of Israel. Saul was the head, head honcho. He was the guy in charge, and he had totally failed at his job. He was not doing it really well at all. He wasn't honoring God. So if, if God's got a people um, and the king isn't honoring God, it's kind of like bad news for everybody, right? So, God appoints David to be the new king, and Saul gets wind of this and is like all ready to like take David out. So, if we go to the next slide here, we got Saul at 1 Samuel, chapter 19. Saul gets so angry that he tries to kill David, right? Like he throws a spear at him. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've had anybody to try to kill you, but throwing a spear at you across the, across the room, that's what was going on. Saul was like, I got to get rid of David. He is driving me nuts, and so he tries to spear him to death. I've never been speared to death or attempted to, but I imagine that's a very uh, challenging experience to say the least. Then, so David, so Jonathan is Saul's uh, firstborn son. Jonathan makes a pact with David because Jonathan likes David, and Jonathan helps David get out of get out of dodge. Right, he gets out of dodge. So David then, there in chapter twenty-one, he flees to a town of priests. That he knows like so these are like basically imagine like if I like lived in the town with a bunch of pastors, like how boring would that be? Like everybody just reading books all the time and praying. It seems kind of lame. But that's what they had back then, you know? So whatever. David is like, okay, I gotta get out of here. I go and hang out with all like the pastors conference people. I'm gonna hang out with them and I need to get some help. And so they he shows up and he's like, Well, look, man, like all of our food is gone, like we ate all the nachos and everything like that. But here's the deal. I've got a little bit of some special bread um, for the church. And I've got this weapon. It happens to be the sword that David used to kill Goliath. So Ahimelech helps David. But I have to pay attention to the story. Because David, when he's in this part of the story, he's very careful in how he asks Ahimelech for help. Because he's, he's basically like, I don't know who I can trust. Ahimelech's a friend. And I need his help, but I don't want to get him in trouble. So he just basically says, like... I'm on a mission with the king. I need some help. Ahimelech gets the bread, gets the sword, gets it to him. Kind of thinks it's a little strange that he left on the secret mission from the king without any food or weapons. But you know what? Okay, we're just going to let you go. Go do your business and move on. So David gets the food and the weapon. And then, um, sorry, oh, Mike, Mike is blocking me from seeing the word there. Doeg Doeg is said to have been there. He would watch everything happen. So first Samuel 21.7, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, right? He might've been in timeout or something like that. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. All right. So here's how the story progresses from there. Saul is still trying to kill David and he's like running him down. He tries to find out where David is and suddenly discovers David is like gathering together all the people of God. Um, Jonathan has helped David and that David is out and around and developing an army. And so in classic mode of a narcissist, Saul gets all self-pity. So here he is, Psalm 22, or sorry, 1 Samuel 22. we We'll just kind of read this story and you kind of pick up. Here now people of Benjamin... Will the son of Jesse, so that's David, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands, and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? Right, a big old pity party. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with, my son, with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me and discloses to me my own son has stirred up the servant against me to lie in wait at this day. Now, pay attention. Then answer Doeg the Edomite. Right, I'm just... Here he comes into the story. Here is his moment to shine. Who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse. So he's talking about David. Come to Nob, to Himelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So at face value, you're kind of like, okay, something doesn't seem right here. What Doeg has done is he tells the story of what David did but he leaves out some critical information, right? He doesn't talk about how David didn't really disclose what he was there about. He didn't really discuss about how David kind of basically begged for food and help. He didn't really disclose about how David kind of kept the priest out of all the information line and just got what he needed and moved on. He actually implies that the priest joined David in opposing the king, raising up beef, told a half-truth, and then... uh, presented it with a little bit of some spin to Saul. Doeg, And so then when he tells him this, Saul is like, all right, you guys are out. And so because of Doeg's lie, the entire town of pastors, entire town of priests dies, 85 folks. So somehow like the stakes are really, like you've gone from kind of being like, whoa, like kind of like a big deal to like a really big deal. It all hinges on this moment where Doeg tells us half truth, that's a full lie, that gets a bunch of people killed. All right, so everybody still track with me? We're talking about Bible history. I know we can kind of like all kind of glaze out a little bit. but we're So that's kind of where we're at. Doeg has told this lie that killed people that David loved. So then David, we get back to Psalm 52. How does he respond? He hears about this. And what does he do? Why do you boast o evil, of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. So when we read that the first time, I'm sure maybe we read that and we're kind of like, man, those are some harsh words. But now with the backstory behind those, you're kind of like, yeah, you go get them. You know, (laughs) like, bro, you were straight up lying and 85 people died, not to mention like all the other destruction that you caused. David has got a serious beef here. And he is giving us a pattern for how to understand what's going on because the psalm here starts out in a way that's very different from a lot of psalms. A lot of psalms, the audience in view is me and God and his people. But David starts out the psalm in a way that's very personal. Did you pick up on that? He says, you, six times in these four, these, these, uh, four verses. He's going after Doag specifically. You, your lying tongue, your deceitful tongue, what you have lied about and deceived. You have killed, you have caused the death of 85 people, right? This is a moment where actually the Psalms kind of do on the outside what we do on the inside. Anybody, whenever you have a beef with somebody else, you have that inner dialogue, that inner argument. <laughs> you know, ends up happening for me when I'm like snowblowing. I'm just kind of like, God, oh, that guy, you know, obviously not snowblowing right now, but you have that inner argument in the head. David's just doing that on the outside but he's doing it in a way that's God-centered and gives us some instruction for what to do here. So let's, let's dig in these verses here. So what does David do? First of all, he identifies what's going on with what this guy's doing, right? The nature of what a lie is. So the tongue plots destruction. So there's a calculated dynamic to it. It takes, a, there's a destruction that it wants. I want things on my terms and I want them to be taken from you. Right, A lie is like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Right, a, a lie is like a razor. It cuts right through to some heart dynamics, some, some things that are true and not true, but it's really subtle. You love evil more than good. It's not that people who lie don't like good things, but that they want them on their own terms rather than the good way and good design of God's design for us. You lie more than what is speaking what is right because honestly, speaking what is right demands that we might be on the hook for something. Rather, it kind of mitigates and def- deflects. A lie uh, desires to, to kind of put aside what is right for what is my preference and what's my agenda. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. This is why I think one of the ways to kind of talk about this, a lie is a way that we take life with our words I think it might be kind of like how to put this. A lie is how we take life from other people. We take from other people with our words. We take from them with the words that we say. Because honestly, right, if you look at the beginning of the Bible, um, the way God creates the world and gives life is by what? His words. His words create everything. His words give life. His words build up. His words are the pattern and design for how our words are to function. And when we tell a lie, we are demanding that other people give their life in submission to our agenda. We, we are taking from them to promote our own agenda rather than God's agenda. It is a taking of life from other people with our words. And I think that that's why he uses this, this picture here. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. Right? That razor image, has anybody anybody worked in food service where you got like the super sharp knives? Like, man, you, I remember cutting my thumb on one, when I was doing some tomato stuff I cut my, it, it is like a razor. You know when you cut your thumb with a really good knife or a sword? I don't actually use a sword that often. <laughs> but a really good knife or, like, a razor. Like, at first, like it kind of, like, it cuts the skin. You don't even, you can't even tell. You're like, and then the blood comes. I think that's why he uses this image. Because what does a razor do, right? It cuts, and you can't quite tell. There's something and then you see the after effect. That's the way it is with a lie, right? They said, what? They said, what about me? It doesn't feel right. And then a day or two, a few weeks later, a year, then the, the heartache and pain starts coming out. Wait, they said, what? It takes a little bit, it feels off at first, but then it starts like, yeah, I, f- I feel like I'm bleeding inside. Right, that's how we use our words. It's a that when, I, when we use our words to to not give life but to take life, or when we've had that done to us, it's often kind of hard to put our finger on it. But we can we know that we're bleeding on the inside. Uh, it's a little bit of a different context, but this is what I think often happens in arguments when we we say things that are intended to take life from somebody rather than give life to them. So I had this happen with and a few weeks ago. We had an argument about, I mean, we, I've known Michelle for like 20 years, and uh, we know each other really well. And when you know somebody that long, you begin to know how to use words to make a, a real deep point and really cut deep. And I had said some things to Michelle that really made, I made a very, a very strong statement that effectively was a lie, and I demanded life from her. I took like a razor, man, the explosion. The argument that happened, and ultimately coming to realize, like, you know what, you were right. I had no right to say those words. I was dead wrong, and they were a lie about you. Would you please forgive me? I don't know if that happens in your marriage or in your relationships or your friendships, but when you have words that take life from other people, they can feel like a sharp razor that just cuts us right on the inside. That's what's going on in this psalm here. So, the reason we were saying these first four verses are identifying what's going on in a lie is because often we just need words to begin to identify why are, we, why are we hurt so much on the inside when somebody's words cut us so deeply? Why do we hurt? Oh, it, it's because the, a lie and angry words are a sharp razor, right? Now, I'm not saying that the person that might have said those things are a, is a, an exact, a worker of deceit, so to speak, like, like what's being said in this psalm. But that's the nature of what a lie is. And it's helpful for us just to have biblical pictures and images and patterns of being able to say, you know what, here's what a lie is, right? A lie are words that are taking life and harming me. Lies make the self at the center, right? That's what's going on here. Lies do not give life, but they take life. Rather than what starts out verse one, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Lies are a momentary use of words to get things on our own terms. But the reason that's helpful is because we just need to have some categories to be able to understand, okay, something's not right here. There's not truth being said about me or other people. And I need to be able to vent and get perspective. And it's helpful to be able to to get perspective when we feel helpless and powerless. We can identify what's going on. Also, for people who are the victims of being abused or manipulated, they are often told that they cannot have right words to understand what's going on. Right? You can feel like, absolutely helpless. And here's God saying, No, no, no. You have the absolute right, to not absolute right, but you have the ability to, be able to pick, up, pick up what's going on in the line and be able to just to say it out loud. Your words took life from me. That's not okay. Your words were used to say untrue things about me. And that's not okay. God does not like that. So we can identify what's going on in a lie, but that's not where the psalm just leaves us. It, it, it goes from what's happened, identify what's going on in a lie, to what will happen, and so we're going to look at in the next few verses, because there is a direction that God takes this thing to help us kind of begin to wrestle with how do we deal with a lie, because right, what's happened in a lie is an injustice has been done, and now we have to look forward to where justice is deal, dealt with. So psalm verses five through seven, God will break you down forever. So we're going from you love all words that devour, verse four, oh deceitful tongue. So he's identified the lie. So verses five through seven, we need to remember that the sober, the sober ending of lives, God will break you down forever, right? We are in sober town. He will snatch you and tear you from your tent, he will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trust in the abundance of his riches, and sought refuge in his, own, in his own destruction. You see, things get really serious here. And here's the picture of how God deals with justice. God doesn't kind of like show up and be like, Okay, all right, let's kind of figure this out. You present your case, I'm going to present my case, and then we're going to kind of figure this out. God knows infinitely, always, the true and right reality of the world. And when God reveals himself, when, uh, when he comes out, so to speak, and says, here's who I am and justice will be done, it happens in an instant. He doesn't wait. He doesn't kind of wait for a few periods of time to go by and like, okay, let's him in a home, we're going to consider the case. When God shows up, justice happens Immediately. So that's why you see in the book of Revelation, the very end of the Bible, a similar picture happens, Revelation 29, and they marched up the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. So these are all the people who are opposed to God, opposed to his people, who have lied about his people. They show up, and then what happens? But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. There was no contest. There was, there was no waiting around to figure out how this is going to happen or how this is going to get resolved. The lies that had been told about God's people and his name when God shows up to deal out justice, just like we see in the psalm, God does it in an instant. And it happens on the spot. right? And notice, we're going to come back, we we'll swing back to this, but notice what happens when he brings judgment. The people that have opposed God are removed from the land. They are the ones that are removed. They are the ones that are taken away. They are the ones... They had no they have no more presence before God, and God leaves his people there. God doesn't use God doesn't remove his people from the land. So let me just kind of pick up this because I'm sure somebody in here is asking this question. Verse 6: The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. We hear that and we're like, wow, that sounds incredibly vindictive, right? You're talking about a God of justice and love and mercy, and here when God brings his justice you're saying that somebody's laughing about it? (laughs) Like like when somebody gets in a car wreck that's like swerving around the highway, (laughs) that guy, is that what's going on here? He deserves it. No, actually what's going on here, uh, as one scholar would say, laughing here is the spontaneous joy that the ultimate breakthrough of justice, long hidden and not discerned has arrived, right? So what it's saying is, you ever have like the nature of a joke is that you have two realities that don't make sense, and then you come to an unexpected conclusion. You know, that, that, the unexpected, that things are so off-kilter, and they don't line up correctly. We often feel like this about lies about us or other people, that, man, it just seems like the, the, it's so oppressive and dark, and I just don't know how to figure this out, and it just doesn't seem like it's going to be made right and make sense, and then suddenly the Bible says God brings justice. Brings the uh, brings the truth to light, and it's just kind of like that nervous laughter. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you don't know what to do, but something's happened that you don't that, that you like that sort of thing. But I think it's important to kind of put it in that context to not say like it's not like lo- laughing at somebody, but it's laughing at oh, finally the realization of who God is and His justice has happened. All right, that's why he says. Right, He wouldn't trust in God and make God his refuge, but God has provided for us refuge. And that's why I think it says, "Verse the beginning of verse 6, the righteous shall see and fear. Right, Not see and deride, not see and condescend, not see and put down, but see and fear, because there is a fear in seeing God's judgment happen and a, a sobriety about what I deserve. Right? So you have Jesus saying in, in Matthew 12... I tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word they speak. So when God brings his judgment and we see it happen there is a reality that those who know Jesus realize I deserve that same judgment too. I have no I have no pretense I have no ability to hold anything over somebody else. I have no place to stand over somebody and say, "Oh yeah, you got what you deserved." while knowing that all of my careless words of anger and, and bitterness towards my children and my friends, those don't deserve God's judgment, do they? Of course they do. That's why we, I just want to swing us back here as we're kind of looking through this. End of verse 5, God's judgment looks like what? He will uproot you from the land of the living. Right In the, in the, in the Bible's picture of the world... People who live on the land are blessed and people who are removed from the land are cursed. And so when it comes time for Jesus to deal with our deepest problems, what does the Bible talk about? He's removed from the land. <laughs> he receives the curse of being removed and lifted up and hung naked on a tree because it's fulfilling this picture that does Jesus deserve that? He was the one who gave life with his words, right? But he is lifted up from the ground. He is lifted up off of the land of the living, he is uprooted and presented before God to receive the curse and judgment of God. Right? That's where these psalms are really kind of their weird dynamics where we have to remember who's the who's the one who prays this psalm? David. And the better David who comes after him, the one who actually comes to fulfill what it means to be the king of God's people. Rather than praying this as kind of like, ha-ha, all you guys who've said mean things and lies about God and other people, he actually comes and says, no, 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 I'm going to take your place so that the people who were my enemies can, because I was cursed on their behalf, can save them from themselves and give them to God to own his land for God forever. So that we can enjoy the infinite love and presence of God. He comes so that we are not left to ourselves with all the lies and hurtful words we've said about other people. Can you imagine if you lived in a world in the refuge, so to speak, of all the lies and betrayals and the half-truths that you've told in your life? What would that feel like? It would feel like an anxious judgment coming to knock on your door. It would feel like if I were left to myself and the world designed on my own terms... I would not want God to come over for dinner. But because Jesus was uprooted from the land of the living, because he took all the pain and punishment and suffering that I deserve and that you deserve for all the ways in which we have done verses 1 through 4, little half-truths, little comments about other people that reveal our deep rebellion against God in our hearts, we can now See and fear. Right? Not condescend, not us versus them. But say, Oh God, you saved me from myself. You saved me from all the things that I would actually want. Actually, the things that I would use my words to build for me, all the things that I would want to get from myself on my own terms. You have saved me from myself, right? So that when we see God's judgment laid out in the days to come, it's not, ha, ha, ha gotcha. Actually, we can look at our friends who struggle with lying or even our friends among us that lie and say, oh God, have mercy on them because there will become a day when there will be no, tur- no turning back. God, have mercy. It is, oh God, deliver them from their lies as you delivered me from my lying words. It is a, mo- it is a posture of compassion and pity. And let me say this. This is, I'm going to pull in a little quote uh, from our friend Charles Spurgeon just to bring a little bit some more sobriety to this. If you are a person that, that has lied and brings lies to kind of be your refuge in life, I'm going to, I'm going to lie my way through life. Let me bring this some, some sobriety from Spurgeon. The deeply lying person. About them, I will not say that it is beyond the power of grace to save them, but I will say this. It is the rarest thing under heaven for a man who has long been a liar ever to be converted. (sighs) Spurgeon brings some straight fire right there. He's saying, he, he goes on to say in another place, I've seen people from all walks of life saved from all types of things, but the person that is committed to the life on their own terms and lying their way through life, it is most challenging for them to have the lights turn on and see God's grace and mercy for them because they will only have life on their terms. It can happen. And I pray that that's where you're at, that it's happening for you because God loves to turn the lights on. He loves to make people a part of his grace and truth, but that involves recognizing that you have trusted in the abundance of your own riches, verse seven, and sought refuge to your own destruction. That is not something that you want. And for those of us who have struggled to see the pain of lies against us play out, what we're going to see here, we're going to kind of now turn back around and ask, what do we do today? Because uh, this this psalm does not leave us there. Right? There is a there is a pain in a dynamic in life that we need to wrestle with. A waiting that we need to wait on for truth to come out. And so that's what we're gonna end with here, verses eight and nine. You guys hanging with me? We're cool? Yeah. All right. We're gonna we've been looking at identifying grace or identifying lies, sober reflection on the future of lies. And then here we're gonna end with waiting with grace amidst the lies. So verses eight and nine. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Okay, so there are four dynamics of waiting with grace going on in this and these last two verses. Can we throw these up here? Four dynamics of waiting with grace that are laid out for how we deal with the lies around us and the lies that would take life from us. Our identity of grace, the priority of grace, the weapon of grace, and the people of grace. So we're going to hit these because we're not going to do a full sermon in these two verses. We're going to hit them real quick but I want them to mean something for us as we walk through this. First off, we're gonna look at our identity of grace. If anybody in here is a scholar and architect of Old Old Testament temples, would you please raise your hand? Okay, nobody nobody in here uh, 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 (laughs) an expert in Old Testament temples, but there is a word here that is not supposed to be there. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. If you read your Old Testament, you will never find a tree in the temple of God. So what is going on with this? Well, he is making a metaphor, right? It's very simple. He's making a metaphor, a picture of reality. And he pulls out, I am a green olive tree. Now we read that and we're kind of like, well, I mean, I get olive oil from the store. But I, don't know where, I don't know anything about olive trees. Well, if it, one thing about olive trees is that they are the, some of the oldest living trees in the world. So can we throw this picture up here? I guess picture. This is um, the oliviero de mocho mochao. I don't know Italian or Greek, whatever. <laughs> anybody want to guess how old this tree is? Any guesses? Nine hundred years old. Okay. Anybody else? H- upper okay, nine hundred one. You know, I got nine hundred <laughs> one? Fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred. Or I got fifteen hundred. Fifteen hundred one. 500, 1 okay. This we're gonna move on, but this tree is about estimated to be about thirty-five hundred years old. It's beautiful, right? It's gigantic. And this is what the psalmist has in mind. He is making a statement about the reality and power of grace in our lives. We can go back to the four dynamics. He is making a statement about the power and dynamics of God's grace in our lives. He will make you in Jesus like a green olive tree that will live off the power and fruit of his grace for a long, 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 long time. (laughs) Eternity. Right. If you're in Jesus, the picture is that the way that you get the power to sustain when lies are going on around you or about you, the way you get that power is by the temple of God, Jesus himself, giving you grace to be a green olive tree, somebody that will continually flourish and grow and have infinite grace and love for you forever, that's the beginning. That's our identity and grace, right? The identity of grace is that, is that it is more important about what Jesus says about you rather than what the lies were said about you, right? Jesus says to you that you are beloved. You are a beloved tree of his eternal love and his delight, and he wants you in his presence forever, right? So there, there's just this little line here at the end of the psalm, but it has this powerful reality. Your identity is not what is tr- said about you in the lies of whatever has been said, Whatever somebody has said to come against you to take your life, Jesus says, they can't even scratch the bark, bro. I've got a power and grace and love that makes their identity flourish in my presence forever and ever and ever because I want them. (laughs) It's not because they deserve it or you deserve it. It's because Jesus wants you in his presence because he loves you. (laughs) I mean, that's something I've struggled to understand, that Jesus actually likes me and wants me to be with him. Anybody else struggle with that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you're in, a house, you're, you're in a room full of green olive trees that are still trying to understand that you're an olive tree in Jesus. You got it? So Jesus says the way you deal with all those lies is, first of all, deal with your identity to understand, I am loved and wanted and flourishing in the presence of God because of his truth, not the lies said about me. Second thing, second half of the verse, the priority of grace, right? So here's my identity of grace. I'm a green olive tree, presence of God. Like, right? what if we just said, hey, olive tree, how's it going all day? Yeah. <laughs> I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. This maybe just seems to kind of flow out of the other one, but the priority of grace means that rather than getting all bent out of shape, about all the wrong things that have been said about me or the lies, I get more in line with identifying God's grace in my life and what's true about God. God does not believe lies about you. Now, the corollary is God does know everything true about you, which means that all the things that you do need to repent of and find grace for and change and get help with, He already knows. And what does it say? I will trust in the steadfast love of God. Not that God's going to get frustrated and flick me. Not that God's going to get angry and kind of try to get like a rebate on me. But that God has a steadfast love that is forever and ever. And I will make that my priority in how I relate to any situation, especially God himself. Right? God's love is not fragile. God's love for you is not iffy, and it is a grace that goes on forever and ever. So identity of grace, the priority of grace, saying, okay, God's not going to believe lies about me. And even if a liar says something that might kind of ring true a little bit, God's got me so that I can repent and find grace for that. And so then, verse 9, we'll see the fourth, third dynamic. I will thank you forever, right? The weapon of grace, because you have done it. The weapon of grace. Why do I phrase it like this? Uh, I'm not trying to say that we come out with swords with thankfulness written on them or anything like that, but that thankfulness is actually a sword against the bitterness of life that can come in our hearts with lies, right? There, there is a, 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 actually, I've been thinking about this lately uh, with a number of kind of national things going on with the church. Uh, believers in general, Hebrews 12 warns us against the, the root of bitterness that can come up, right? Bitterness and anger and injustice can happen when lies are said and we get more focused on what has been said against us rather than what God's done for us. And so the weapon of grace that we're given here and encouraged to take up is, I will thank you forever because you have done it. There is a confidence of faith that God will save us and redeem us and hold us, and we want to, rather than get obsessed with the lies that are going on in our lives, right? It's okay to vent. David did that first four verses. But we gotta eventually say, okay, God, I'm thankful that you have given me your grace and do that curve up. And the fine thing, the last thing that he says here, the fourth dynamic is people of grace, the people of grace. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly, Right? We often need other people around us to remind us when we have been lied about, when we have been betrayed, when we have been spoken against, when life, quote, has been taken from us by other people's words. We need people that know Jesus to direct us towards Jesus around us, right? This is why, by the way, uh, going to missional community or small group, um, you should just do it even if you don't want to, uh, because often you need it. And actually, when you don't want it's actually probably the most important time when you do need it. And what actually is interesting about these four categories is that there's a lot of self-talk in this, right? So the main point of this whole passage is when lied about, we must use our words to wait on God. Who's the audience of those words? (laughs) Myself, right? I will will take control of myself. I I will arrest my heart. I will arrest my mind and say, do not get focused and obsessed about all these things being said about you and the beef being stirred up around you. Don't get too obsessed with that. Because you know where that ends up? Not in a good place. I must take control of my heart and my inner narrative. You know who you you hear from more than anybody else? I know we all hear from the president and the news and social media and our stupid Facebook feed and all that stuff. You know who talks to you the most? Yourself. And so, what this psalm is ending us with is I'm going to use my words. I will, I will, I will trust in him and his love and his goodness when all these untrue things are being said about me. Okay, Jacob, who's your king? What's your identity? What's true about God? What's Jesus said about you? What are you going to be thankful for today? Rather than getting all bent out of shape with all the, the creole pie of lies about me or around me, I will take a rest of myself and have multiple come-to-Jesus conversations with myself. You know what a come-to-Jesus conversation is? We you basically have to punch somebody in the face with, the, with your words. Get, like, some, like, like, come on, get your act together. Stop being so... Look at Jesus. Having those with myself so that I talk myself, remind myself, God's got it, and if I don't get control of what's being said about me with all these lies... I can trust God more than the lies. So here's where we're ending up. When lied about, we must use our words to wait on God. So how do we do that, remember? We identify what's going on a lie. We remember the sober ending of lies. And we wait with grace amidst the lies. Because Jesus waits with us. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this psalm, I pray that it has come to life for our souls that we pray this and we ask this and we take a rest of ourselves so that we know who you are. We delight in you. And when we are lied about, Lord, I pray that our, our gut response would now be to go to Psalm 52 and use our words to wait on you. Because you got us, you're with us, and you can take care of us. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you